You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Our guest tonight, for the full two hours of the show, is someone I hugely respect and admire for the work she's done bringing to light the accomplishments of women throughout history. Her name is Max Dashu, and her historical research is comparing the many cultures of the world, searching for the spheres of women's power, was instrumental in our own research into the secret life of Lady Liberty. We studied her suppressed history's archive and interviewed her extensively, and then relied on her enormous intellect and memory during our fact-checking stage. Tonight, we have invited her back to talk about her own new book that was released about the same time as our Lady Liberty book, and we'll be touching on both of them a little bit tonight. The title of Max Dashu's new book is Witches and Pagans, Women and European Folk Religion from the Years 700 to 1100. Now, I'm going to read to you part of a paragraph from page 330 of this book by way of introduction to the topic, because, as it turns out, studying women in the European folk religions of the early medieval period reveals an entirely new perspective on the role of women in the past. Quote, In spite of everything that we've been taught about the profoundly secondary status of the female, what women did in their spiritual realm mattered. The wise women had oracular authority and healing wisdom and ceremonial leadership, even after being stripped of any institutional base. Now, these female spheres of power faced intense challenges from the church, from the state, and from within the patriarchal family. Sexual politics was closely bound up with witchcraft and with the cries of witch and whore in England and with why the Spanish treated burning at the stake as a female punishment. Now, this book is compelling exploration of language, archaeology, medieval literature, and art. In it, Max Dashu pulls the covers off of heritage known to few but scholarly specialists. She has put the common woman at the center of her focus, and this results in a very different European history than what is usually taught. Join us tonight as we explore the sagas, the laws, the illuminated manuscripts, and more to uncover the spiritual leadership of women and the goddesses, fates, and ancestors they revered. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, Max Dashu. Thank you very much, Bob. Well, let's start by describing the ethno-historical approach you take to history. What do you do differently from the history we learned in school? Oh, that, that's well put, uh, because it's really, there are historians who are taking this approach now, but it's still not something that you see uh, in, in basic education, in the main public educa- education. And what this does, number one, is it puts women at the center, which is not what happens in our textbooks. Women are really a side note and afterthought. And it puts the common people at the center. And looking at their culture in this period of 700 to 1100, this is something that if you, what you're taught in school is very much about the church, about the feudal order. You're not really getting a very good picture at all. The, the, the common woman is the farthest hid into the farthest corners uh, as far as our education, if she's really mentioned at all. 
And so what, what was that culture like? An ethno-historical approach goes through language. It goes through cultural names, named ceremonies, references to spiritual practices that were attributed to women, associated with women. And that is completely absent from our education, even at the graduate level. Yeah. This is not something that you commonly see being addressed, you know, um, in, in the universities or really in, in culture-wide. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of things about festivals, about uh, prophetic practices, about healing practices, the runes, how people saw dreams. And especially in, in the third chapter of Witches and Pagans, I'm talking about the names of the witch. And because what we were taught in school, and this is still pretty much in all of the, even the Halloween culture uh, that we get every year, is, you know, this, this sort of demonized idea of the witch, you know, a green old woman riding on a broomstick with a wart on her nose. And, you know, really uh, not usually associated with the wisdom traditions. And what the linguistic survey that I did uncovered was that far from the demonized stereotype of the witch as an evil-doing woman, as ugly, all these, all these things. Really, if you look in the languages, in the ethnic cultures of Europe, the titles that they gave to witches meant wise woman, prophetic woman, oracular woman, diviner, herbalist, healer, shapeshifter, doer, Dreamer, the truth sayer, there's a whole lot of honorific titles that very much show that this is a spiritual role. This is a spiritual role of leadership that uh, people were looking at. And uh, there's, there's a couple places in my whole long 40-some years of, of writing this book, I kept uncovering certain keystone quotes from priestly sources because they're the literate class. So anything that we know, pretty much, unless it's archaeological, was in some way recorded by them. And there's one place where there's a um, penitential book that was written by a Frankish priest in the 800s up in, up in northern France. And he, his penitential, what, what those books were, was the priesthood would try to um, stamp out the pagan customs, the heathen customs, which were really basically ethnic religion, is all they were. They were they were folk culture, and so he is scolding about how people are bringing offerings to stones and trees and wellsprings, and so a later, about a thousand years ago, an Anglo-Saxon translator copied this penitential, but he did something very interesting that tells us a lot about the texture of the culture, the nature of the spiritual culture that is being campaigned against here. And so I'll read you the quote that um, he, he translates this from Latin into, into Old English, and he editorializes by adding a little commentary. So here's the original. Some men are so blind that they bring their offerings to earth-fast stone and also to trees and to wellsprings. And then, you know, the, the original a French cleric is blah, 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 about how stupid and, and idolatrous this is. But the Anglo-Saxon translator contextualized the passages by adding a revealing phrase to it. And he says, Swa Wiccan Techa, as the witches teach. 
And so this shows us that the Anglo-Saxons, a thousand years ago, still understood witches within the context of heathen ceremony. And so non-Christian ceremony, these are old reverences of an earth-based tradition. And so, you know, we're seeing animus reverence of the witches for earth, trees, and water. So that's very different than the devil worship that we were all force-fed as an explanation of what witches were up to. Well, thank you. That's an in-depth answer, all right. You know, I just wanted our listeners to know that you've been working at this for a really long time. You founded the Suppressed Histories Archives in 1970 to research global women's history and heritages. Your legendary slideshows bring to light female realities hidden from view, and your collection of over 40,000 images have been used in hundreds of slideshows which you have presented at universities, conferences, and venues around the world. Way to go. That is extraordinary. We were so happy to be able to contact with you during the process of writing our book, which only took us six and a half years. Yeah. <laughs> Long process. Right? Yes, it does. It is. Why do some historians disapprove of mixing historical and spiritual themes, and why do you say that not mixing spiritual themes into historical interpretation is a distortion. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the ideology says the, the standard thing is a stance of pretended objectivity. You know, I think that there is a rationalist, linear, masculine, mechanistic bias to a lot of the way that, that academia has done things, has done analysis of history and culture. You know, as I was saying, there's this linear bias that uh, is seen as being the objective bias, but there's not an admission of the way that these assumptions structure the cultural record. And so, you know, uh, on the one hand, you've got the, the mechanistic, uh, rationalistic bias of Western academia, and then uh, there's maybe an indigenous perspective or an earth-reverent perspective that looks at the evidence really differently. And in fact, in uh, scholars, there are scholars that do social history, that do ethnohistory, who do understand the importance of the texture of culture. You know, this is the framework that everything happens within. But um, you know, there's there's, uh, for example, in interpreting archaeology, what are you going to call things? And so there's taboos in academia. Using the word goddess, for example, is a taboo, and they insist on boilerplates like the term fertility idol or maybe fertility goddess, but goddess cannot be used alone. It has to have this little fertility stamp added to it, mm. or Venus figurines. In an aboriginal context, people might be much more likely to look at those and say grandmothers, ancestral mothers, or uh, holy women, or whatever. You know, there's sacred women, uh, goddesses even. So um, there's, there's different ways, and I think a lot of modern... Uh, a lot, a lot of modern feminists look at them and they go, goddess, and they don't mean by that the same thing as the male gods of the dominant religions, but something that's much more uh, integrated into earth, water, air, and fire, something that's part of the natural world and part of themselves, part of their families, part of their communities. And so it's really a battle over naming, and therefore it's a battle over worldview. Yeah. Well, I, I guess some people overstate your conclusions and assume you're claiming that Middle Ages was full of feminists. Are you, cla <laughs> are you, are you claiming that? No. And, and, no. And uh, it was a very patriarchal period. 
I mean, and I say that in the book. I just, I just lay it right out. These are patriarchal societies. But I think that we need to get into some more complexity when we look at all of this and not just have like this mono, mono-polarized view, right, yeah. that says, okay, it was all patriarchy. Because I do see evidence in the folk cultures for female spheres of power. And that doesn't mean that the family system wasn't patriarchal, and you know, there's, a, there's a lot of things that we could, we could talk about that are bad. But in this book, what I'm trying to lay out is the ways in which women were at the center of ceremony, you know, uh, leaders of ceremony in many instances. Uh, the oracular speech of women was extremely important, for example, in Scandinavia. And there are other references in the penitential books written by the priesthood about women who were herbalists, who were diviners. There are a lot of references to diviners uh, being off back in the woods somewhere and people going to them and lots of uh, priestly scolding against this. You know, you should not do this. This is not Christian. This is pagan. And so, you know, that's what very much as we see in the Bible where the goddess Asherah is still present and there's indications that the common people in Israel were revering her. Oh, yeah. And as we read Kings and Chronicles, there's references to that and repression, references to the repression as well. So some, something similar, parallel at least, to that happening in Europe because you have an aristocratic uh, uh, church trying to bring everything in line with their, their doctrine. And so, you know, with their, their method of doing that, one of the major illogical frameworks that they place over the folk cultures is devil worship. That's how they're interpreting all of the ceremonies, all of the sacred traditions. It's all devil worship. And those who carry it out, and particularly female, this is considered really um, uh, wrong by them because there's not supposed to be any spiritual leadership by women. You know, the church at that time and, you know, until very, very recently was an all-male clergy. You know, women were barred from the priesthood. And so this, too, be, was taken as something devilish, something really deeply wrong. And this is a way of enforcing uh, more male dominance inside the society. So we see an evolution or a devolution, really, in, in medieval Europe where there's a loss gradually into early modern times of female spheres of power, like that of the herbalist and the midwife, or the, the female diviner, the wise woman. These are persecuted categories. And so this really, the process of beating that out was really a reformation in a very bad way yeah. of European culture. And we are still living with the legacies of that repression. We certainly Which are. has never really been processed. We need to take a pause here because there's a malfunction in our machinery going on here. And we'll be right back. Our guest is Max Dashu, Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion, 700 to 1100, Valeda Press, 2016. Order online at Valeda, that's V-E-L-E-D-A dot net, or you can also learn a great deal more at Max's other website, suppressedhistories.net. I always thought that Europe was fully Christianized by the early medieval period that you cover in this book from the year 700 to 1100 Common That's Era. Claim. But you reveal that the Christian church of this time had a main competitor in the goddess. 
Who was she, and how was she denied or demonized by the Church? Now, this is extremely important. Yes, and, you know, there's no single deity, there's no single goddess that I'm talking about. There is a constellation of goddesses who have similar traits. So, you know, she's named in different ways. And a lot of the records by the priesthood, they really tried not to give her native names. And so you have them calling her Diana, goddess of the pagans, or Herodias, who is a figure from the Christian Bible. But in one place, one of these priests, let's flip through an indigenous name, which is that of the goddess Hola. And he calls her the witch Holda. And by mentioning that, that one phrase... He puts in another keystone for us. This is another one of these key junctures that, that I came across, was that you know he was saying, the witch holder, this connects us with a whole horizon of goddess veneration in the common people's culture in Germany, and especially in northern Germany. In southern Germany, they were more likely to call her Perchta. And you have Andra Mari in the Basque country, and you have the Queen of Elfame, or Nick Nevin in Scotland, and there's a whole spectrum of goddesses, all of which are seen as being... So really, many often, in many ways, earth goddesses, goddesses of wells, goddesses who are riding in storms, especially in the winter nights holiday, and that's the time when they are honored, especially as spinners. And this ties in with a lot of the fake goddess traditions another big grouping in European culture. And so these, these goddesses of the winter, winter nights are associated with witches, they're associated with the ancestral dead, and also, in the case of Frau Hulla, she, from her pond, come babies. So we have that little fragment from Bishop Bertrand of Wurm uh, talking about the witch Holda that indicates to us that there is a continuity between early medieval culture that the priesthood is railing against as being devil worship. And on the other hand, folk customs and folk observances that persisted among the peasantry, in Germany in this case, for many hundreds of years afterwards, in fact for a thousand years. And so um, that's an important link-up because those there is a concerted campaign to wipe all this out, and there are a lot of missing. I call this the ripped shred of, of women's culture, you know, the ripped web, rather, of mm-hmm. women's culture. You know, and we're, we're taking all these little shreds and trying to weave them back together and see that there are connections actually to be read there. We certainly don't have the whole picture, but we have some very significant pieces that give us an outline and a texture to it. Well, following up on this question, how was she... How was the goddess demonized is a good segue to explain how you were so helpful in our research, The Secret Life of Lady Liberty, as you say on page 330, at the center of the cultural transformation was the development of diabolism, a Christian projection of the devil, onto all ethnic deities. It had a lasting impact. The name-calling of devil worship formed the template for repressing goddess veneration and later indigenous religions on other continents. Can you tell our listeners how this name-calling still influences us today through the extremist extremist Christians who call the Statue of Liberty the Whore of Babylon? What do they mean by that? Yeah. Well, see, and that's a way of 
reinterpreting something which, to, in my mind, the Statue of Liberty is like a reservoir of goddess veneration inside. You know, it's like some of the, the best that re, re, remained in European culture, which in itself was actually quite patriarchal, the, the U.S. colonial societies and, uh, you know, um, just the status of women in this country. Very strongly patriarchal in many ways. But the, that reservoir, it's a goddess symbol. And there's a tendency, as you know from your research, you know, Athena is often shown in images of uh, civilizing mission and manifest destiny. Uh, those, those European symbols are instrumentalized for this ideology of conquest. So there's a lot of negative ways that that is being used on the one hand, or the way that the goddess images are being used um, colonially. But on the other hand, we have this projection of negativity onto any of these uh, allegorical figures, let's call them, these allegorical goddesses such as liberty, that um, by anyone who is in opposition to the idea that women have power, women should be free, into the opposition to the idea of liberty whatsoever. And so they have drawn on this long-standing historical pattern of demonizing the female demonizing goddesses and, you know, especially drawing on that line from Revelations about the Whore of Babylon, they are basically rescripting all this to once again attack female power or any, any symbolism having to do with liberty in this particular case. So um, that's, that's what's going on there. And another piece of it is that the, the issue of, I call this diabolism, the projection that the deities of other religions or the spirits of other religions are really devils, are really the devil. You know? And this is basically uh, a religious supersessionist uh, idea where they're projecting onto other societies. They're all bad, and what we have, our religion is all good, and we have to make them adopt our religion. So it's highly authoritarian. And that forma formation of... Uh, the devil-worship ideology in Europe, which was propagated against the pagan cultures, against the ethnic goddesses and, and the, the common people, is then exported after 1492 into the Americas and into all the world conquests by Europeans in Africa and the Pacific and other places. And they begin to use that as an ideological tool of conquest. And they're saying, well, you know, we have to conquer and enslave the Indians, and we have a right to do that because they're Christian, they're pagan, and we're actually bringing them all the blessings of civilization. And so diabolism was very important. If you look at the early engravings, starting in the 1500s and then going on for the next couple hundred years, uh, about American peoples, there is a lot of that shot through it. And, for example, pictures of the, the deities of the Haitian people in the late, I think it's Theodore de Brie, uh, made these engravings and showing those deities as devils. And, you know, these fantastic figures that have three breasts and animal heads and mm -hmm. all these kinds of things. And, yeah. you know, um, this is a very negative way of viewing other cultures. It's not a partnership mode in any way. There's no room for t real treaty or friendship or even diplomacy because it is top-down. Yes. We got the right thing, and we're going to force you down your throat and That's get out of the way because here we come. Yep, the domination philosophy yeah. of patriarchy. 
Well, we got a little shameless self-promotion time, friends. Visit our website at www.secretlifeofladyliberty.com and view the gallery where we have images of the Whore of Babylon posted as well as hundreds of other images of Lady Liberty, plus ordering information for a new book, www.secretlifeofladyliberty. Now, our hundreds of illustrations can't compare to your 40,000. But <laughs> but... Well, I only have 140 in my book. Oh, is that all? Okay. <laughs> but I had to render them all. You know, whoa, whoa, boy, what worth you know, that is. You're working you're... out copyright permissions for pictures that I don't even know where I got them mm. almost many decades ago. You know, it was just easier to, to redraw them. Well, now, now let's go back to the women in European folk religion from 700 to 1100 max. Why do you value folk culture as a form of history? Well, you know, it, it is the culture of the people, and it is, it is basically a map of values mm-hmm. inside those cultures. And when we're looking for women's culture, there's very little recorded. And so by looking at the evidence about ceremonies they performed or beliefs that they had, we start to learn something about the texture of their lives and what they valued, what they honored. Uh, There's a lot of references to the sacred wells and stones and things like that. So we're seeing an aspect of European history, actually, that is not normally taught. And I think it's well worth knowing, especially because suddenly you see women looming very large in that picture. Mm-hmm. Well, is it the only form of history from the common people that we have access to? Is what? Folk religions. Folk religions. Well, you know, that's a very broad thing. And, and I should just say that, you know, this whole research that I've, I've done is very interdisciplinary. So I'm looking at language, the mm-hmm. linguistic origins of words, and what that says about the, the older religious philosophies, you could call them, or spiritual philosophies. In other cases, it's archaeological because we have megalithic monuments, we have references to ceremonies being done at megalithic monuments. There are references to birth, and uh, one of the pictures I have in the book is from an Anglo-Saxon manuscript called the Lachnunga, and it's an herbal compendium. And in their uh, scripture, this is all written by clerics, right? They have pictures of snakes weaving through the pages on childbirth. <laughs> oh, yes. You know, so it tells you something uh, about that which is otherwise hidden in the culture. Because we, we know how people farmed. I mean, these are things that they cover in, you know, standard medieval studies. And they talk about the, the class system of serfdom and all of that. But you don't get much idea of the texture of people's lives. And one of the things that, that comes out, for example, is we have this idea of the witch's wand, which is, you know, all our fairy stories is full of this. And so we find actual archaeological evidence of oracle, oracular women using wands, having ritual stabs. Uh, and so I really give a lot of documentation about that because... The description of what people did in their lives is history. That's what you could call social history or ethno-history. And, you know, not just who were the kings, who were the dynasties, what wars did they fight. And those stories never say anything, really, about the suffering of the commoners whose fields were being trampled under the chargers' hooves during these battles. 
you know, but to really get an idea of what life was like for women then, people then, but, you know, really looking at the women who are so invisible otherwise. Because if you crack a book on medieval culture, you're going to find a million crucifixes, a million churches, some Madonnas, and, you know, that stuff is all there, but it's not a really balanced look because there is this other stuff which is from below. It's the deep strata of culture that hasn't yet been displaced by uh, Christianity or by the priesthood. Well, how was nurturing Mother Earth transformed into the sexualized and demonized figure of Luxuria? And please tell us what this somewhat disturbing repeated image of a woman with snakes suckling her breasts is supposed to be all about. What does that symbolize? Okay, well, in the earliest period, and this is mostly Frankish symbolism, so it's like basically northern France and uh, a little bit over into Belgium, uh, the Rhineland, they have... um, numerous Christian scriptures have earth represented. She's in the margins. She's literally in the margins. But she's sitting there, sometimes under a tree, with a snake suckling at her breast. Or sometimes she has babies at her breast. Sometimes she has animals. She'll have a bullock on one side and a snake on the other. And the the representation is in some way showing her as the great mother, so that there can be humans, animals, and snakes all at her breast. She is the life giver in this symbolism. So it's a sacred symbolism. And even the Christians are still adding her. You know, she may be next there in the corner beside a crucifix or a scene of the Last Judgment, but she's there. This is around 800, 900, the the art that I'm talking about. And uh, we have one set of four bronzes, which is the four elements. And so the element of earth is shown a, a sculpture of a woman with the snake at her breast in just this way. What happens is that the priestly ideology of the seven deadly sins comes into the picture. And you have the theologians torquing this symbolism around, which I believe is really culturally specific to this part of the world. I don't know of, I've seen images from India with snakes coming out of the vulva, but not anything like uh, from the breast. And so, um, she is culturally specific to northern France and the Rhineland uh, way of showing Mother Earth. And what happens with when Luxuria is brought into it is, again, this demonizing. So now she, her, her naked breasts are, uh, have serpents at them, but it's becoming more and more scary. She, they're chewing on her breasts. They're gnawing on her. There's, it's like painful, and it becomes a punishment. Rather than her power of nurturing, it becomes a divine punishment on an evil female figure. And she really ties together, as luxurious, she ties together with Christian ideology of Eve and the fall and woman as the sexual temptress and how she has to be punished, and also Eve's association with the snake and the tree. So all of this gets reinterpreted in a really negative way by the theologians, and this art begins to show up in Romanesque churches, and from about a thousand years ago up through the 1300s, she becomes more and more demonized, and also, you know, being being made into an old woman with long hanging breasts, and the serpents are tormenting her. And so you can see this, this very strong shift in the way she's valued 
from being revered to being reviled. Reviled, yes. The fates, on page six you say, quote, the fates cast a long reflection across millennia of European folk culture. They were older than the Indo-European migrations that divided the Celts and Italians from the Germanics and the Balts and the Slavs. Who are the fates, and what do the women's ceremonies performed in their reverence reveal to us? Well, first, the naming of the fates is, you know, varied in the different languages across Europe. The word fata in, uh, you know, the origin of the word for fate that we're using here is from a, a Latin word which means to speak prophetically. And so they are prophetic speakers, but also ordainers of that which will unfold in a person's life. And very often, for example, the Roman of the ancient Greeks and Romans talked about them as spinners who spun out the thread of each person's life. And you see that reflected in a, in a few places in the Icelandic sagas, where you have one, one saga where the, there's a, a hero who is born, and it shows the fates fastening the threads that they have spun and basically connecting him to certain times and places and people, you know, in the course of his life. And so there's this idea that these are not beings as personalities, but much more a philosophical way about talking about the unfolding of reality and the powers that are at work. And so, but especially at birth and death, you know, those are the two bookends to a human life. And even the gods are supposed to be subject to these fates, which you see occasionally popping up in the Greek material and also in the Norse. And so those are the, those are the better-known written traditions. But here again, if we look into the folk culture of the Czechs, for example, they call them sudice or sudichki. And this means the female judges. I mean, it just means the judges, feminine form of the word. And so there's a lot of forms of the fates as threefold goddesses. The Greeks, the Romans, the three weird sisters in English, and the Flemish and the Dutch had forms of that also, uh, very Slavic, Slavic languages have these forms. And they're usually threefold. And this can be, as with the Norns, uh, past, present, and future. With actually, the names of the Norns are a little more... They're deeper than that because the, they literally mean urth means became. That's the oldest fate. We're going to have to pause here. I'm sorry to break in there, Max. Max Dashu, Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion, 700 to 1100, Valeda Press, 2016. Valeda is spelled V-E-L-E-D-A dot net. Valeda dot net. You can also... Uh, learn a great deal more on Max's other website, suppressedhistories.net. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio with our guest, Max Dashu, goddess scholar and historian. You can order her DVD, Women's Power and Global Perspective. We need to get some more of these DVDs. Again, if you want to order that, it's www.suppressedhistories.net. Go up to her website. Friends, you're gonna, you can spend weeks there, maybe even a month. Hang, just hanging out there learning. It's just great to know this stuff. Wow. Well, now let's examine the most obvious Roman influence on Lady Liberty, a Roman goddess named Libertas. Uh, please tell us who she was and how the American Statue of Liberty is different from 
the Roman Libertas? Well, gosh, how it's different. Well, there, you know, you have the, the eagle headdress that I referred to earlier, the, the Statue of Liberty that, I mean, the, uh, the, the Freedom Statue that's on top of the uh, Capitol building. The, the Statue of Liberty itself, I think, you know, I mean, clearly that she's named after Libertas in the Roman context. And you have this idea of, of the one who frees slaves that is part of the history in Rome. Uh, shrines that were built to her, some of which were actually uh, governmental shrines. You know, that you have various rulers uh, having these temples constructed to her on the Aventine Hill. And uh, there is that, that idea of the freedom cap that I talked about a little bit earlier on. But um, let's see here, what else do I have about Libertas? Well, the, the Roman robes, of course, very much connecting her with... with uh, the, the Latin tradition, uh, the tablets of the law that she's carrying, and you've got the date of the American uh, Declaration of Independence on there, so very much in the mode of the liberation theme all over again. And we talked about the broken chain. Let's see, what else do I want to say about her? What, one thing I wanted to mention is that in addition to Libertas, this is one of those personified virtues types of goddesses, in other words, it wasn't necessarily a goddess that rose up out of the folk culture, as far as I know, but there were other forms of goddesses that were, like, for example, Diana in particular, her temple was a refuge for slaves, for fugitive slaves. And that, that's another interesting uh, connection of the goddess tradition, is that you have this idea of sanctuary being connected specifically with goddess temples. Artemis Ephesia is another example, so I'm just throwing that in there. But um, Libertas became, like, sort of in, in the uh, classical Roman terms, the matron of, of liberated people, of, to the freed people. And the diadem was replaced, uh, replacing the, uh, any of the other suggested ideas for the headdress. So she's wearing a crown with the ray. So the idea that not only is she holding the torch, but also she's radiating light yeah. from, from her very head. And people are looking out from that from that head with its seven points of light, um, you know, just able to climb up inside there and, and view from within her. Uh, by the way, do you think that meditating on an image or, or qualities of Lady Liberty, can they inspire a woman or, or man today? And if so, how? Oh, I do think so. I think that, you know, meditating on divine forms, you know, for atheists, they're going to say, well, you know, it just, it's, all, it's all a fantasy, but... The human consciousness is, is something that really resonates with symbol, and we can really infuse ourselves with intention and with awareness by those kinds of meditation. I know that certain people, for example, Selena Fox has really found, I think she founded a Lady Liberty League or something that's like right. that. Yes. And, and, you know, that, that's been a very important focus for her. And so it's sort of like the fusion of the social consciousness with the spiritual consciousness and the way that those interplay between each other, it's a really good mobilizing force for change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are um, there's a lot of different forms that, that that concept of liberty can take. It wouldn't have to necessarily be the Statue of Liberty. You could come up with, I mean, you know, even, even the goddess Kali has those aspects in her. So there's many forms... That, that has uh, assumed 
through all these different cultures. But I think that, uh, you know, this is something like uh, teachers like Amachi from India talk a lot about being able to focus and attune to divine forms. For that matter, the, the Sufis also do, oh, yeah. in order to transform your own consciousness to create change within your being right. so that you are sort of pulling yourself through using these symbols and using the power of your consciousness to focus. It's a form of concentration that ultimately is a way of manifestation. You're going to manifest your desire or your goal that you're attuning to. What are our... And certainly there are certain kind of actions that you refer to that we can all do if we and these are actions of course not just meditative if we awaken the female divine within uh, being an artist when you work for a long period of time max on any particular project and you start feeling that energy come up through your body um, it, it is such a glorious experience and that's one of the reasons why I just wish any and everybody create things, create anything, especially if it's positive. Because yeah. during that process of creation, your consciousness is elevated considerably. I mean, many of us artists, uh, well, you only get one meal a day and that, <laughs> back in the old days. Actually, not so old days long ago, but, but you know, uh, during that process, when you're alone in your study, in your studio, working 8, 10, 12, 16 hours at a time every day, 5, 6, 7 days a week, you just, you become transformed. You become yeah. another being. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And, and uh, this is one reason I like to also work with music doing art. Oh. You know, because it is, there's this elevation that happens. And that's another reason why... I've had a hard time. I mean, I remember long ago, politically, I would try to do art that showed... I wanted to make people understand about some of the, the unjust things going on, but it was too hard. I just find it too hard to paint scenes of horror. Yeah. You know? I, I want to focus on things that inspire. I can understand. And so, you know, I found that out pretty early on. Well, one of the, more recently, one of the toughest pieces I ever had to do dealt with Monsanto. You're familiar with Monsanto? Yes. Uh, obviously, uh, I, I think of them as public enemy number one through 600. Uh, they're almost like General Electric or, or Union Carbide. You know, you can put them in the same class uh, along those lines. Uh, oh, but before, I, we're, I know we're running out of time, and, and there's a uh, let's try to, well, there's something, Max, uh, I started this hour with an indication of how the rising of consciousness of goddess, of environmental awareness, of social justice for women and indigenous people are all connected. Would you like to talk about whether uh, how, or how goddess reverence affects better status for women or the planet as a whole? I mean, for the planet, we can we can just look at the disrespect and the violation of Earth that's been going on. I mean, this has been a, a mounting process that just keeps getting more and more intensified. And so we have to have a reference for the basic, you know, this is the Earth is our mother. Everything, what we drink, what we eat, it all comes from Earth. And this is a this is a state of sacred beauty. Ultimately, I mean, the Earth is a could be a paradise. It is a paradise. It was a paradise, <laughs> you 
you know, there's, it just, there's, there's so many teachings and sacred things that are manifesting through the way that life is organized, the way that it grows, the way that it flows, all the harmonies. But here it is being violated and destroyed. So like the, to restore that reverence and to have people really feel it integrally will mobilize them to action. This, this is the interplay between the reverence and the need to act because that is like the, aside from any kind of symbolic rituals where you're offering up symbols, you have to do something. You know, you have to change things so that this violation can't continue. Mm -hmm. And then on the human level, this is also where justice comes in. You know, the, the, the violence against women, against children, the violence against people of color and indigenous people, there's so many different ways where the justice imperative comes in. And all of those wrong and maladaptive acts are something that take, away, take us away from our ultimate nature. You know, they're, they're just they're marginalizing everything that's good and positive about humans, and it's, it's picking up on the greedy and the negative and the bloody and, and the poisonous aspects. And so we, I think that there is a way in which the restoration of that, that divine female in our consciousness, however we think about it. You don't have to be a theist. I think that the whole theist, atheist polarity is an artifact of patriarchal religion. Mm -hmm. You know, That's life true. is sacred. Water is sacred. You don't have to believe in beings that don't exist, That's you right. know, to have a reverent attitude towards what is sacred in nature. And so, you know, if we, if we move from that and we move from a position, a place of love, move from the heart in how we relate each other, then that is manifesting goddess, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. That is the ultimate. Unconditional love. That's how, yeah. basically, I've always felt about it. Max Dashu, goddess historian, restoring women to cultural memory through the suppressed histories of archives. We're going to have to pause here for our break at the top of the hour. Okay, <laughs> our guest tonight, this hour, I've been looking forward to this interview for months, is Max Dashu, Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion, 700 to 1100, Valeda Press, 2016. You can order online at Valeda, V-E-L-E-D-A, dot net, Valeda, dot net. You can also learn a great deal more at Max's other website, Suppressed Histories. .net. There sure has been a lot of suppressed histories, friends. Okay. Uh, what is the relationship, Max, uh, between the fairy realm or the fey people to the fates, enchantment, and the spiritual world? Yes, well, this is related to the last question about the fates, because the, the word fata, as I explained just now from Latin, means to speak prophetically. And so this gave us the word fate. Then in the Romance languages, in Spanish and French and various related languages, fata changes on the tongues of people. You know how language will kind of migrate, the sounds will change. We can't really understand uh, Shakespeare as well as we can understand modern English because there are shifts that happen. And so it becomes fata or fada or hada in Spanish. It becomes fe in French. And there's, this is all uncontroversial if you just look it all up in an etymological dictionary. And the French word, feerie, 
meaning the realm of the fairies, the realm of destiny, the, the magical realm, uh, gets adopted into English as the word fairy. And so, you know, then we have to ask, well, what are the fairies? Because we have this idea about Tinkerbell and, you know, Disneyfied ideas of, or Victorian ideas about fairies. But in medieval Europe and in the folk cultures, fairies were bound up with the ancestral dead, with the land, and there's, you know, you'll always see fairies appearing at powerful natural sanctuaries like springs and lakes or in forests, the forest of Brocéliande in, in the Breton culture. And so they are potent spirits and often pictured as female, not exclusively, but uh, there's been some very interesting scholarship showing how in the folk culture people really did see the fairies as bound up with the ancestral dead. And that's a piece that a lot of people don't know about. Mm-hmm. Ancestor, reverate, uh, sorry, ancestor reverence is a, a subject that I go into in this book, and I didn't really plan to be talking about it, but as I uncovered more information, I could see that this was something that was going on. And it's an important connection of Europe to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, when people think of ancestor veneration, they usually think of China. But this is something that was also very generalized in Africa, in the Americas, and other parts of the world, in the Pacific. So uh, Europe also had this. And this is one of the points in the book that I think is really important, is what connects us to the other peoples on this planet. Why was the distaff or spinner's wand significant in mythology and ceremonial practice? I, I didn't catch the, something blipped out there. Why was what? Why was the distaff? The distaff, yes. Or the spinner's wand. Uh, I, I always misinterpret that as a magic wand. Well, no, you didn't. It's not It's not a misinterpretation at all. Oh. It is, in fact. Well, I I mean, oh, that's it, great. Okay. Literally, the distaff refers to a staff that you wrap flax around. So the dis in distaff means flax in Anglo-Saxon language. And this is also where we get the word bedizen. And originally, to bedizen was to, to drape the, the raw flax that's been combed out and is ready for spinning, or the wool, around the staff. Then the spinner would pull it down off the staff, and she would twist it with her fingers, and then she would hang it, uh, the drop spindle would twirl, and it would twist the fiber, and it would help draw it out in spinning. So it has a function. It's a function of a tool for spinning. But symbolically, what you said is exactly right. It was a magic wand. And we see it being referred to that way in the sagas of Scandinavia, in all kinds of different folk traditions in different parts of Europe, and connected with witches. In the Norse world, though, the seeresses of the Norse were literally called staff women. And so we know this from the Old Norse literature. And we also know this now from archaeology because they've found women buried with iron stabs. And uh, after some research, I discovered a Norwegian archaeologist who identified the shape of this staff, the symbolism of it, as a distaff. And when I read this, I had to go look it up. And sure enough, the form, it's a very unusual shape. And I was always looking at it and going, what is this? It's a very strange shape because it has these spokes about mm-hmm. uh, yeah. four-fifths of the way up the staff. Spokes that emerge out of the staff, flank, the, the, the actual body of the staff, and 
curve outward and then come back together and join up for the top of the staff. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And so when Elda Heda raised this point, and I, and I checked it out online, and I looked at pictures of distaffs, because usually you see it with the stuff wrapped around it, so you don't know what the stick itself looks like underneath. And they were all in exactly the same shape as the, the staffs of the Norse Vrur, the, the, the prophetic women. And so that was an amazing, that was one of the last big discovery I made while writing this book, which took decades. So it's, you know, mm -hmm. things kind of unfolded. But when I, when I discovered that archaeology, it was like a missing piece fell into place of things that I had already been developing in other chapters of the book, which was, you know, the, what we talked about with the fates and the symbolism of the fates or the fairy women as spinners and the ceremonies that women did around spinning and weaving. And we have testimony from bishops in various parts of Europe scolding women for doing that, for invoking goddesses while spinning and weaving. And then now we have an actual material evidence of women who were spiritual leaders that were buried with this kind of staff. And so that authenticates what the sagas are telling us, that there were women who led ceremonies that's known as seder, and they uh, prophesy in, in a trance state in these ceremonies. And so the staff is referred to in descriptions of uh, various ruler in uh, different parts of Scandinavia. So it's really beautiful when you have something coming down first through oral tradition and then later written down by the monks, right, in the 1200s. They begin committing the Icelandic Edda and the sagas to writing. And then in the process of doing that, they gave us a, a, a continuity there from what would have, or, or, or would have been lost otherwise. And... So then along come the archaeologists, and they say, well, here is the material background for this. And in fact, that's the archaeology is what really pulls out this bit about this, this, the distaff being a magical wand. Mm -hmm. you know, that, it was, that was what the prophetesses were, were using. And we don't know how they used it. I mean, they could have been using them for spinning. At one, I think it's an Erbigya saga, one of the sagas, talks about a witch named Katya, and some men are chasing after her son, trying to kill him. And so she says, never mind, sit here beside me, and she takes up her distaff and she begins spinning. And the enemies charge into the house, and they can't see him. She's sitting there spinning and looking at them. And so they leave. And so th this is seen as a way of casting a spell. You know, you're laying, you've been laying the foundation of knowledge in these areas that that others can build on and that can stand on your shoulders for others to to take it to higher realms. I'm telling you, I am so impressed with your work. I mean, you're say forty years, but it sounds like you've been at this for thousands of years. <laughs> and and it makes such a difference. Good research is is well, it isn't there isn't as much of it as my opinion as there used to be. Because the standards aren't what they used to be. 
but you you have done a marvelous job. Now I, I don't want to embarrass you, but I I I had to pull away from the other questions to make sure I said that because it's it's extraordinary. Now on page forty two, you talk about certain tales of women effectively weaving peace in a section that reminded me of the League of the Iroquois and their Council of the Clan Mothers. Can you make the case that some women played an active part in peace negotiations in medieval Europe as well? Well, you know, I, I suggest this because I haven't, uh, I, I've read sources that talk about this. Some of the early feminist scholarship on medieval times brought this out, that women, they're talking primarily about women of aristocratic families who are married off into enemy families. And so these are diplomatic alliances, but very dangerous ones, because these groups, you know, things can shift, and they're at war again. And so it was really in the women's interest, because here they are of one clan, and then they marry this other one. They're losing influence them. They are trying. They are like a person standing with their foot in two boats that are moving apart, mm-hmm. you know, and their children are of the other lineage. So they're going to lose, and Beowulf, the, the old English epic Beowulf, shows this very clearly. Women lose big time when there's war, yes, you know, sure. and uh, there, there's a lot, of, a lot of killings go on. And, you know, uh, they have kin on both sides because of these, these patrilineal, patrilocal marriages. And so it was, they were really motivated, number one, uh, to make this peace. The metaphor of weaving peace is very interesting. Frodo Weib, uh, the, the peace weaver, uh, is a term that does occur in several different an- Anglo-Saxon uh, sources. And so these historians have been suggesting this was actually something that women haven't been given as much credit for as they should have been in you know, modern histories because you know, it was a role they played that was behind the scenes but very influential in you know, what happened you know, in advocating uh, diplomatic work, basically, mm-hmm. that didn't have that title put to it, but that's what it was. Well, I, what, do, what do the ethnic names for witches tell us? Now, you talked a little bit about this last hour, uh, but what do the ethnic names for witches tell us about the spiritual gifts and leadership attributed to them in early medieval times? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's a, there's a lot. I have a table in the book that goes on for about six pages of uh, ethnic names for witches and showing the attributes and powers uh, that were attributed to them. You know, they're actually calling, because, you know, witch is an English word. So, you know, if we look at the Slavic language, languages, the whole family of Slavic languages, uh, Croatian, Serbian, Polish, Russian, Belarus, there are a whole group of names that mean knower. And this is like the, the term wise woman in English. And uh, that turns up also in French and Spanish and some other languages. In Norse, they called the witch Fyrkinigidkona, much-knowing woman. You know, and so this is, this is a very different perspective than the uh, demonized view, obviously. And the fact that you could make pages and pages listing titles for witches, you know, as a herbalist, as healer, as old woman, as diviner, Enchantress. We, we know in English we have this word enchantress, and if you think about the Latin root there of, of that word for chant, it goes down to the word for song. Okay, oh, so yes. there is, uh, incantation is literally 
singing in. You're singing spirit into something, right? And mm-hmm. so we're seeing that as an aspect of the witch. And um, shapeshifters and fateful women, there's a lot of these different names, and some names even uh, referring to, sometimes it's not clear, are they talking about a living witch or were they talking about a female ancestor? Or numerous names like that. There's one name that I think is real, one group of names, I should say, that's, that's very important that I really, I loved finding this information. And this is where the linguistic analysis is so important because it takes you into the mind of the culture. And so in Old English, there was a word for which, libestra, which means basically life woman. Lib is, is the Old English form, is life, it's, it's related to the word for life. And this is not present only in the British Islands, but also in the Scandinavian languages and the Old German. And so the lib, it means life, and it also means medicine. So this is a name, really, you could translate it as medicine woman. Well, we in, got some we got some medicine we have to feed our listeners <laughs> at this time. Uh, uh, and uh, our guest, of course, is Max Dashew. Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion, 700 to 1100, Veleda Press, 2016, spelled V-E-L-E-D-A dot net. And you can also learn um, a great deal more at Max's other website, suppressedhistories.net. Hello, this is Professor Joy Porter, author of Land and Spirit in Native America, which is available on Amazon.com. You are listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Joy to hear Joy Porter again. Really? Oh, we had such good times. Okay, this is 21st Century Radio, and our guest is Max Dashu, Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religion, 700 to 1100, Valeda Press, at 2016. Order online at Valeda, that's V-E-L-E-D-A dot net, or you can also learn a great deal more at Max's other website, suppressedhistories.net. This is an important work. Well, Max, um, what is the original meaning of heathen and how does it relate to names for Iberian witches and Norse seeresses? The heathen in English just means people of the heath, person who grows up in the bush, basically. And, you know, heather is a related word in English. And so this same word existed in German, Haydn, Haydn in, in various Norse languages. And so they all had relatives to this word, and they all referred in early medieval times was used to refer to people who were not Christian, who followed older ethnic ways. So that's been known for a long time. And I came across a really interesting piece, because in, in trying to figure out what the meanings of all these different names for witches were in the various languages, there was a mystery about the Spanish word bruja, and in Portuguese, it's Bruxa in Occitanian languages of southern France and western, uh, eastern Spain, is it, Bruxa. And nobody could really explain that. And there were been various strange theories about what this word came from. But recently, well, in the last 10 years, I ran across a Catalan etymologist. So he's speaking, he's a native speaker of one of the languages that uses this word for which. 
And he thinks that it comes from the word for heath. And he gives examples, linguistic relatives to words for heath in those Romance languages to Irish. And, you know, the linguist, the linguistic case is pretty strong there. So that's another group of languages where there's a pagan connection to this, this word about heath. And basically, what they're talking about is people who live outside urban areas. They're back in the country. They're peasants. And they're ethnic peasants. So this is, this is a group of people that we know heathens to be. They're people who are away from the centers of power because they are the last to actually convert to Christianity. Wow. Thank you. Well, let's talk about the old woman goddesses who, I may mispronounce this, but I'll do it my best, uh, was called Kalyak. Kalyak, yeah, the Kalyak. Oh, Kalyak, okay. And how is she related to ancient megalithic temples in Ireland? Well, I have a whole chapter on this because Kalyak, the Kalyak is just still very much a living figure in Irish lore. And so there, there's one figure in particular called the Kalyak Vera, which means the, the hag of Bear, or the old woman of Bear, in the farthest western peninsula of Ireland. This is said to be belong to her. And there are references to her in old Irish literature, but especially more so in, in the folk culture. And so there are names of the old megalithic monuments. Do you know what I mean? I'm talking about large stone structures that are undressed rock, you know, big, big chambers that were being built over 5,000 years ago. Like Newgrange? Newgrange is a, is a well-known example of a megalithic chamber. And so um, many of these chambers in Ireland are named as the House of the Kalyach, or various other words that they'll use. But they basically refer to them as her dwelling. Uh, sometimes there's a hag's chair outside of some of these, these places. And so there are a lot of sacred stone stories associated with the Kalyach. And it's actually said in folklore that these monuments were built by her and that she would either fling the rocks from hilltop to hilltop, so she's a giantess with this tremendous power, or she would be carrying them in her a basket or usually in, in, in her apron. And the apron strings broke, and that is how the megalithic stones became scattered. Mm -hmm. Because, of mm -hmm. course, we're talking about over the course of thousands of years, many of these were toppled. And so both in France and Ireland, there's a lot of stories about fairy women or spirit women who were responsible for how these stones came to be scattered across the landscape. And so, you know, there's an old woman at the center of these stories, and they are really, really ancient. You know, in Ireland, you have Indo-Europeans settling, and so that's the language that's spoken there now, the Irish language. But they intermarried with the older peoples that were there before. You know, maybe even, I would say that these are likely to have been the builders of the megalithic monuments. And so we don't know to what degree these stories are traces of these very ancient traditions and how much of it is superimposed by, by later migrants. But what you do get is a very strong focus on an ancestral woman. And this is a very aboriginal theme. You know, the old woman from whom came peoples and races because she gave birth to many, many generations of descendants. Mm, yeah. Well, I'd love to hear you talk about Brew Naboin, or the easier name for me to pronounce is Newgrange, because 
I've actually visited this megalithic uh, site in Ireland. How is it related to this tradition of the old woman goddess? Well, Brunabun means the hot. Well, there's two ways to translate. One is the house of Boan, and Boan means the white cow. So this is a goddess that is referred to a lot in the uh, in the Irish literature. You know, written down in the Middle Ages. And there are a lot of goddess traditions wrapped around these. This is another of them. But both Boan and uh, the Kaliach Bera is sometimes named in the stories about her. And she's called Bui, which is the same root as Bo in Boan. It means cow. So there's a sacred cow woman. And this is something very, very deep in Indo-European culture. So in Ireland, we have Bui and Boand. The and part means white, so white cow. And in Gaul, there was a goddess called Bovinda. And so again, this is that Boan, Bovinda. You can kind of see how those are, are linguistically related, the white cow. Bovinda, however, the Gaulish name, has a direct parallel all the way over into India, where you have Govinda, because there's a sound shift. In Western Europe, it was B, and in uh, in the Asian your Indo-European languages, the same sound came out as G. Yeah. And so Bo- Govinda is a title of Krishna, so you have a little bit of a sex shift going on there also. But Govinda is also a title in the litanies of the sacred names of goddess that are still chanted in India. You know, So she's being called Govinda. So this is very, very... I mean, this, this is a, a connection that is older than 5,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, these monuments were more than graves, right? They were also sanctuaries of ceremonial renewal and of astronomical wisdom, as their solar alignments show. Uh, I, you know, I was also fascinated by their being covered in these quartz pebbles. The kerns would actually gleam in the sun from a distance. It's, it's kind of like uh, some of the old stories dealing with the Great Pyramids, supposedly having uh, the, the stones... Uh, almost they, that they, looked like they used quartz also they yeah. used quartz uh, there was a casing of quartz so that they would have been brilliant yeah. in the sun mm-hmm. yeah. Uh-huh. yeah and and it's uh, I mean it, it's really very illuminating because there are many people in this country who have Irish descent yeah and we don't know about all of this you know and about these monuments and these sacred places the astronomical knowledge of many people who are interested in the history of ideas have followed this. And, uh, you know, I went also to New Grange. Oh, one other thing I wanted to say, Brunabon, the, the primary translation of it that I have found is House of Boan. But Mary Condren, who wrote The Serpent and the Goddess, very good classic text on uh, women's history and, and heritages, she found a listing of the word brew without the G-H at the end. And she says, well, actually it means womb. Oh, in Irish. Oh, yeah. You know, so and and that's what a lot of us in the in the feminist movement have talked about for decades now. Is instead of calling these passage graves, which is the archaeological term for Newgrange and Nowth and Douth and these other monumental chambers with mounds over them, uh, we used to call them womb tombs because th- when you look at them, you are actually entering the earth, and you know they have stones, megalithic stones, uh, framing the entrance and then making like a a vaginal passageway that goes into this uterine chamber. 
And this is where they were laying the, the ashes, the remains of the dead collectively to rest inside these womb chambers. So there's a whole spiritual meaning to these places as a regeneration, a, a resurrection, we, a rebirth. We, well, you know, at, at the entrance uh, to Newgrange, there are these very large, uh, not boulders, but they're really long, uh, maybe. The curb stones. Curb stones. And they have these spiral designs on them. Uh, we bought a lot of them. <laughs> we just love them. Uh, could you tell us anything about those spirals and what, what is going on there? Well, you know, they're, they're really energetic patterns. I think they're showing the flow of life force, flow of, of power. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure there are other meanings encoded into them that, you know, we may not be. I mean, there were certainly stories and, and, and symbols and uh, meanings attached to them. Uh, these are not only uh, found on the curbstones at Newgrange. We've got the triple spiral on the inside so that when the sunlight penetrated down the chamber on, I think it's the winter solstice, it would, it, only at that time of year, it would, they had built the monument in such a way that the sun would channel all the way down into the chamber and light up those, those spirals on the inside of it. There are other spirals like that, and in fact, my favorite, I haven't been able to visit very many of these, but I did get to Newgrange, and I got to La Crue. And this is another group of megalithic monuments that are very strongly tied to the Kaliach in oral tradition because it said that she built them number one, and the hag's chair is outside the uppermost of all of the chamber, all these chambered circles uh, at Loch Crew. At the very top, uh, there is one that's called Karen T. And right outside of Karen T, opposite the entrance, is a stone, a granite seat that looks out across the counties of Ireland and has a very distant view. And there are traditions that say that the Kalyach used to sit there and people would come there and also ceremonially sit on it themselves as well. And so it's very interesting because when I went to Loch Crew and we got into the chamber, the entire hallway that you walk down to go into the central chamber is covered with suns and vulvas, deeply, deeply engraved in the rock. This is, by the way, a monument that's several hundred years older than New Grange. This is one of the earlier uh, womb tombs, mm-hmm. and in the back wall of the three recesses that come off the the internal chamber, there, there are these same kinds of spirals, and it really looks like a map of the realm of dreaming, where spirit is just it's like the it's like the primeval chaos that we all come out of, and we come into human human manifestation through the womb, yes. right? And so there's something about those spirals; they are they're in Kuwait. There's no way that they're, there's no order to them. They're just pulsing. And there's this flow being shown by the lines in them. And so they certainly had a very strong meaning, but I think that it is connected with the fact that these are chambers of regeneration. And with that, we got to take our break at this particular time with our guest, Max Dashu, Witches and Pagans, Women and European Folk Religions, 700 to 1100, Berleta Press, 2016. Order online at berleta.net. That's B-E-L-E-D-A dot net. If you think we want you to buy this book, you're right. You can... <laughs> Hello, this is Joanne Shenandoah. 
I'm a Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter, Native American Music Award winner, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. We're talking with Max Dashu, Witches and Pagans, Women in European Folk Religions, 700 to 1100, Belated Press, 2016. And, of course, you can also learn a great deal more at Max's other website, SuppressedHistories.net. Well, the Kayak, can I get that right? I, I did. Yeah. The Kayak, I got an A minus on that. Uh, the Kayak is, is first recorded in written historical documents around the year 900 CE. She is, of course, demonized, but also her age is used against her as a form of weakness instead of wisdom. Whoa, that's how, you know, this is crazy. What happened to the status of old women in real life when the old woman goddess was turned into a hag to be feared? I know you touched on this a little, but this always gets me upset. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the piece that I'm referring to there in the 900s, they make her into a pitiful old nun who has lost her looks and really would much rather be galloping around with the aristocratic men uh, lovers of her youth. But now she's drinking whey among shriveled hags. And so it's very negative towards the old women. And, you know, this is something that we can see more generally as a theme that, you know, these the goddesses, who, there are a lot of old goddesses. I call her the old goddess, just as a general pattern in European culture. And this is back to the sinners of fate and the women of the winter nights, goddesses like Perta and so on. And so they become, toward the end of their career, as uh, get made into the witch stereotype. Uh, there are some of the stories about the Kaliach also in Scotland and Ireland uh, refer to her. It, on the one hand, they're seeing that she's this very powerful figure, but the storytellers are taking pains to see her defeated. And so you'll see her ritually uh, done away with by hunters or priests or other male figures. So there's a very strong gendered theme going on through the way these stories play out. And yet, what's amazing, particularly uh, if you read the Book of the Kaliach by Geroid O'Krulach, an Irish uh, folklorist, he really shows how much there is this very powerful archetype that was preserved. So we're seeing both a negative strand, but we're seeing also the original cultural pulse very, very strong of a positive valuation of the Kaliach as a deathless, vigorous, vitality-filled old woman who's an ancestor and who knew how things were done. You know, so the Irish stories say things like, well, you know, the Kaliach lived so long because she never, you know, brought old water in before, uh, brought new water in before uh, finishing the old water and or throwing the old water out. And there were these different cultural themes that they brought up about her as a hunter-gatherer or the way that she ate that kept her healthy. And so there's this idea that she had a wisdom. She was a, a teacher on some level of the way things should be done, whether it was farming or whatever else it was. And those, those stories smack up against the idea that, although the priest really knows best and the old woman is a counterforce to the priest, mm-hmm. so she's made, in, made into a villainous figure who must be subjugated, done away with, even. So the female elder cannot win, can never be allowed to prevail, because she is a threat to the power of domination. Mm -hmm. These are all ideologies, you know, man over woman, uh, lord over peasant, Christianity over any other religions, 
that were really enforced throughout medieval times. And they're, uh, you know, there's, the ironic thing is that, you know, in the best of the folk culture, you do not have this uh, enforcement going on. You know, there's this idea there are also male figures, for example, in the, the Scandinavian tradition who are participating in the same kinds of uh, ceremonies, uh, similar kinds of ceremonies as, as the Vura that I was talking about earlier. You, you know, it's really the common people's cultures that has the best models for cooperative relations between the sexes. But um, it is a ranked society, and this is the thing when people think about medieval Europe, there is this ranking going on. And this, this is very dangerous for human societies. You know, not good things can happen once one group is saying, you know, I'm better than you and I'm going to run your life for you. Mm. Oh, it's so interesting that you pointed out that the Scandinavian countries today uh, are still far more balanced than what we have over here in the United States. Yeah, they had to go through that Viking period where it was very warlike and, you know, they were causing a lot of suffering to a lot of different countries that they mm-hmm. were raiding all over the place. You know, they were pirates. Mm-hmm. But um, there were ways, and I think that the, the female sphere of power of the Zuller or of the Seeruses was very marked in Scandinavian culture. Uh, toward the end of that period, we see them being gradually driven down, and this, is, this coincides with the period of conversion. Uh, and so you see male warriors beginning to attack and strike the vulva, the prophetess. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, some, some hostility and some, some combativeness coming in there, repression, really, of them. And so they fade from the scene finally. And that's really a loss for the culture, but especially a loss for women, because they had an authoritative role as the prophetesses. Well, I found it interesting that the root word for... Valkyrie, is that how you pronounce it? Valkyrie is to, Valkyrie. Valkyrie is to choose as in chooser of the slain. And that reminds me of the Statue of Liberty again, whose fundamental message is that the United States is a nation where citizens have the liberty to choose what we believe. Anyway, most of us know that the Valkyrie, uh, because of, uh, of Richard Wagner's famous opera and the role, ride of the Valkyrie, Tell us what you found about them, uh, the Valkyrie, when not viewed through a military lens. Yes, right. And and so the thing about the ride of the Valkyries, this is one of the important parts because they are there are stories both in the, in Scandinavia but also in the Balkans about female spirits who ride through the heavens and the dew from their horses shakes down and or the you know, the sweat of their horses shakes down and that's the dew or that somehow they're the do-bringers. And so there's this idea of vital power showering onto the planet, showering onto the earth from them. And so they have this blessing power that is really the opposite of the, the killing. The Valkyrie is the destiner of the slain that we see in the military cult of Odin. There is another piece, which is the fates again. And this is more of a submerged thing because most of the epics that talk about the Valkyries are concerned with lordly men and their wars, but the Valkyrie as fate, there are some stories, um, forgetting which saga it is, there are some Finnish princes who are going hunting together, and there's some swan women who come along, 
and they take these princes as their lovers, and they live together, and the men are like in you know over the moon because it's just so great with these magical women. And then after seven years or nine years, they fly away. And so the the passage in the saga that's describing this occasion refers to them as women who fate destinies. And so in the military version, it's the fading of death in battle. Mm -hmm. And this is a very strong focal point for European patriarchy is, you know, who's in charge, who wins, who loses, and, you know, the warriors. But there are these other aspects of the fates and especially the shapeshifters, women who are goddesses who take the form of swans and sometimes take off their swan cloak and become women and then put their swan cloak on and fly away again. Uh, that ties in with a much broader group of not just European stories but really global stories about spirit women who marry mortal men. But why are priestly penitential manual? Did I get that right? Penitential, penitential yeah, yeah, manuals, important sources of pagan beliefs and practices. Because the priests were the only ones who could write things down. They're the only, they're our only source of written records, and it's the written records we have to go on. Everything else is archaeology, or it is whatever has survived in oral tradition. And this is where we get controversial again in academia because, of course, oral tradition, like language, shifts over time. So then the question becomes how much of these these stories that have come down to us through on the tongues of the common people, how much of this really reflects what was believed a long time ago? And so this is where we get into having to, you know, compare and contrast and kind of see if there's any matches between those different types of testimony. And there is. You know, so that that's the really fascinating mm-hmm. study yeah. is to see how much of how much correspondence there is. But getting back to the penitential books, we're having priests in the act of attempting to stamp out heathen customs, describing those customs to each other in these, these manuals. And so very often there are forms of questionnaires, you know, to ask to the people in the confessional booths did you ever do this ceremony? Do you know any woman who, etc.? And so there, there, this is a process of direct confrontation by the church authorities, which are all men, to against the common belief and the observances and the festivals and the ceremonies of regular people. And did you believe in this goddess? And did you believe in the three sisters who the, the old stupidity of the ancients called the fates? You know, this is very contemptuous language they're using. But they're tracking pagan custom and cataloging it in order to stamp it out. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, they inadvertently preserve evidence of it for us to read. Well, thanks. At least we got a little bit of evidence anyway. Uh, why were female teachers and birth control practitioners major targets of the ecclesiastical offensive on the folk culture? Well, because they were they were major figures in that culture, mm-hmm. and the priesthood didn't want any competition for their authority. Uh, people would, you know, they wanted people to come into the church and pray to get better, and they did not want somebody going to an herbalist who was going to do a smudging of their body and give them herbs and chant over the herbs, maybe invoking deities that the priests don't even, you know, know who they are or approve of, 
Or, you know, maybe the old Scottish witch is going to tell people, now I want you to drink this potion every time, every day, for three, three times a day, and I want you to walk around this lake every day. You know, so there was like a prayerful ceremony that was accompanying. It was really what you could call holistic medicine because it wasn't just the, the pharmaceuticals. It was, um, you know, the herbs were being given. That's the medicinal part. But also there would have been a ceremonial component, and this is much closer to Native American healing methods. So, in fact, then, so many people uh, lost their lives or died because they were prevented from other holistic methods of healing. And that's a pretty terrible thing to do to a human being. Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, there was a high infant mortality then, you know, it's really hard to say how much, I mean, it would have impacted the survival in some ways because they certainly were going after people who were effective healers. We still have this, this dualism today. You sure do. AMA versus the uh, holistic medicine people. Yeah. You know, and, and, and just like then, today, more and more people are going to alternative healers because the doctors are telling them, well, I'm sorry, you have this disease and you're going to die in six months. (laughs) (laughs) And that wraps it up. (laughs) Yeah, you know, or or just, you know, giving them basically saying, well, there's nothing we can do. I mean, they don't often say that. They will just say it's incurable. (laughs) Yes, yes. But, um, you know, there are people who are seeking out everything from acupuncturists to all kinds of other uh, touch modalities and herbal methods that are effective. So well, that's the thing. The proof is in the pudding. And, and right about now, we we are all totally ineffective because we've run out of time, darn it. Oh, this oh, has right. been so great, Max. You do such a terrific job. God bless you. God Thank bless you, Bob. dear. You know, and I hope people will check out this source book. That's really what it's intended to be. Well, what a source book. Jesus, whiz. Because this is a hard information to get your hands on. So I just try to pull it all together in one place. Well, thank you for joining us, and I hope you join us again. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. Our engineer is Anita Brockington, and I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus. <laughs>